another pot of coffee is brewing and it's been a long, long week. Mostly without coffee due to the fact that I actually ran out. Yes, you heard that right. I ran out. However, that issue has now been resolved and I am almost firing on full cylinders, which is good because this week's book gave me a lot to talk about. All that means is that it's time for the next episode of Not Before Coffee Season 4. I'm your host, Ray, self-confessed bookworm, film addict, TV show marathoner, hermit, long-term depression sufferer and very honest caffeine fiend. Light the candles, get yourself a fresh cup of something hot or a glass of something chilled, depending entirely on when you're listening, of course, and let's get started. Though I didn't actually purchase any books this week, I know I was shocked too, I did get a beautiful surprise in the form of a delivery containing five books from my Amazon wishlist halfway through the week. These were in exchange for a cake that I baked, and I am looking forward to reading them all. A beautiful selection, all very different, and two by authors I have never read before. Actually, I think it might be three, so I really can't wait to read them. The book I've selected for this week, however, is one that was the fastest selling adult crime debut when it was released in September 2020. It was the first debut novel to be the Christmas book bestseller and before it was released was part of a 10-way bidding war, eventually going to Penguin for an undisclosed seven-figure sum. Nice work if you can get it, right? But does the first novel by TV presenter Richard Osman actually deserve all the hype? Yes, this week I am reviewing The Thursday Murder Club. In a peaceful retirement village, four unlikely friends meet weekly in the jigsaw room to discuss unsolved crimes. Together they call themselves The Thursday Murder Club. Elizabeth, Joyce, Ibrahim and Ron might be pushing 80, but they still have a few tricks up their sleeves. When a local developer is found dead with a mysterious photograph left next to the body, the Thursday Murder Club suddenly find themselves in the middle of their first live case. As the bodies begin to pile up, can our unorthodox but brilliant gang catch the killer before it's too late? Okay, as with every single week, I'm going to start at the beginning with this one because it's truly the best place to tell the story from, even if I am going to go again with a no-spoiler telling. Cozy crime is quickly becoming one of my favourite easy-read genres. After all, what's better than reading about a sleepy town that is all beautiful, peaceful and kind on the outside, but dripping with venom when you cut it open and watch all the secrets seep out? I have to be honest, I came to the Richard Osman party pretty late. After all, this book came out a full 18 months ago, and until relatively recently I had no idea what this murder club was all about. A few close friends had read it and their feedback, which I will get to later, was pretty mixed, though for very different reasons. In a sleepy little retirement village called Cooper's Chase, which I am guessing is somewhere in Sussex, if the towns and cities mentioned are anything to go by, is a group of four unlikely friends who, every Thursday, meet in a communal room to solve cold cases. 
The story has two different narrators. One is Joyce, the new girl who is just learning how things work and still getting to know the people who have brought her into their group. The second is third person, the impartial observer. However, without one of them, things would probably be less clear. Anyway, our first narrator, Joyce Meadowcroft, is relatively new to the group, only joining after Penny, the founding member, suffered a stroke. Or at least this is what I have to assume, given that the details are incredibly vague, despite constant mentions of Penny and how wonderful a person she is. It is through Joyce's diary entries that we get to know a little more about each of our core characters, Elizabeth Best, Ibrahim Arif and Ron Ritchie, the other members of the Thursday Murder Club. Then, of course, there is the collection of potential victims, because what would a murder club be without a murder? And the police, because where there is a totally competent amateur investigator, there will always be a bumbling police force. In this instance, that is made up of Donna Freitas, who is about to get her first big case, and Chris Hudson, a lonely, more experienced DCI. As well as these very necessary characters for a murder mystery, there are quite a few extras added to the roster, and for me, they were a little too much. But I'll get into my reasons for that later. Our central characters live in a retirement village that was built by a rather slimy and definitely opportunistic partnership between two men who very clearly don't have a good relationship, Ian Ventham and Tony Curran. I have to be honest, when I started reading the book and the field of potential victims was introduced, my immediate instinct was to point a finger at Ian Ventham and say, he's going to get it first. In fact, I did say that quite loudly and luckily my neighbour was out. Of course, as anyone who has read the book will be able to tell you, in this instance, my instincts and being honest, my desires were very wrong so I would have been an incredibly useless member of the Thursday Murder Club. There are so many motives introduced at the beginning of the book and so many potential murderers that it feels a little overwhelming and also confusing at the same time. However, all of these motives seem to be pointing at Ian Ventham being the murder victim. When this proves to be something of a red herring, I was personally more than a little bit disappointed especially when a character who was only really introduced as a peripheral with a bit of a dodgy past and an association with Ventham, Tony Curran, is bludgeoned to death in his kitchen. Of course, as with every other cosy crime novel, our intrepid investigators seem to be ahead of the game when it comes to getting closer to the murderer and the motive, and they lead the police a merry chase. Each member of the group has a lot to offer, with a lot of experience courtesy of their different jobs. I may have missed it being specifically mentioned, but it's very obvious that Elizabeth's past is connected to some kind of MI5 role, perhaps as an agent. Whatever it was, she knows a lot of people in a lot of places, and she is able to get a great deal of information about whatever she's looking into. Ibrahim Arif is a retired psychiatrist, But being retired doesn't mean he's lost the skills that made him very good at his job. He understands people, and when investigating a murder, that is a very useful ability to have. Ron Ritchie is an ex-union boss with a celebrity boxer son called Jason. He knows how to get things done, how to encourage people to support a specific cause, 
And despite definitely rubbing some people up the wrong way, he knows his way around the law. And then, of course, we have Joyce Meadowcroft. She's a retired nurse, part of the narration team, and there are subtle hints about her partner, Jerry, that make me believe Jerry is more likely Geraldine than Gerald. But to be honest, that doesn't play much of a part in the story as it's being told. It's merely something that makes up the character. It has no effect on her role as a narrator. Aiding the Thursday Murder Club, we have Donna and Chris, two members of the local constabulary. This is Donna's first big case, and she is definitely far more receptive to the help she is offered by Elizabeth Joyce and the others when compared with most official investigators in novels like this. You only have to look at the way DCI Wilkes acts when Agatha Raisin appears on the scene in M.C. Beaton's novels to see a huge contrast. Donna appears to be slightly out of her depth when it comes to the murder investigation. I would go so far as to say that she is nervous and unsure of herself, despite the fact that she is keen to prove herself and her investigative abilities, and what better way to do that than solving a murder case? She goes so far as to ask for a position on the case team. DCI Hughes is less positive about receiving help from the curious older generation. He is still proving himself in his role, and the key focus when it comes to his part in the story is more to do with his desire to lose weight. He has a very cliched issue with donuts, And he also is looking for Ms. Wright, a fact that hasn't escaped anyone's notice and is a matter that Donna actually helps to resolve. Before anyone really has any kind of chance to solve Tony Curran's murder or even find any sort of motive other than animosity in a business relationship, a second murder occurs. This one is far more subtle and sophisticated than the first. A quick injection of fentanyl and the character I believed would always be the murder victim, Ian Ventham, is dead. As with every book I review, I am not going to give a chapter-by-chapter synopsis, nor am I going to be giving away the motive behind the murder or identify who did it. For me, the highlight of reading a book like this is putting together all the plot points and seeing if I can figure out the guilty party correctly before the characters in the book come to their own conclusion. This book is based in an area that I'm familiar with, and I have to admit that it was quite nice to read about locations that I have visited regularly since I was a child, and not in connection with a location where a character in an Oscar Wilde play was abandoned as a baby. Yes, I am talking about Worthing, and the importance of being earnest. That having been said, we do also get an impromptu trip to Cyprus and occasional travels outside Sussex. However, it was apparent that the mostly coastal county was the central location for all of the exciting events that had the Thursday Murder Club moving outside their comfort zone. For me, there are a number of issues with the characterisation that I will be getting into a little bit later on, though the biggest problem I had with the book was the fact that it honestly felt as though the murders and their resolution were a rushed addition which is incredibly unfortunate in a book that is marketed as cosy crime. Before I get into what I thought about the book in more detail, it's been out for long enough that a sequel has been released and a third book in the series is due 
at the end of this year. In fact, I think it's September. It's garnered a lot of support from many sources, been nominated for a number of awards and is being optioned by Steven Spielberg's Amblin Entertainment, with the film being written and directed by Ol Parker, who more recently worked on the, in my view, rather disappointing sequel to Mamma Mia!, but that's a whole different story. And if you want to hear a review of that, you need to go and listen to It's a Musical podcast. When I started my search, I anticipated that all the reviews I read would be incredibly positive, especially given the glowing press reports. However, once I looked into things more carefully, it was quite clear to see that there were as many people who found the book didn't quite meet the incredibly flattering column inches it had earned, as those who loved it and were recommending it to every person they possibly could. Riddy Ditchokar gave it four stars, saying, This was a funny, clever and entertaining read. Four pensioners with a zest for catching murderers, a retirement village, two lovable and protective cops, and a real-life murder. I have to be honest, the first half was quite boring, At least the murder mystery part, what got me through was the fun banter between the quirky characters. But the second half of the book really took an interesting turn. I had thought this was a cosy mystery, but I was really surprised by how dark the second half was, and I couldn't guess who the murderer was. Didn't see it coming. All in all, I really enjoyed it. However, Kathy gave it a single star and acknowledged that her opinion would be likely unpopular. Unpopular opinion alert, but I thought that this book was kind of terrible. It has a nice concept, sort of. It's partially set in a retirement village and we are quickly introduced to a lot of quirky characters who have organised themselves into a Thursday murder club in order to solve... Solve? Discuss? take a really weird illegal interest in, crimes that happened a long time ago. So far, reasonably okay. When a real murder takes place adjacent to the community, the gang decide to throw themselves into investigating it for real. This is what a majority of the plot is taken up with. As a concept, this is all fine. But this isn't it. Richard Osman then feels the need to introduce us to 50 other characters for seemingly no reason whatsoever. The book is sold as a murder mystery, so let's discuss that, because Richard Osman doesn't really feel the need to. It's a weird and meandering investigation that we get from multiple sides. We get the murder club's version of events, then we get a bumbling police detective's version of events, then we get what actually happened. This could have been interesting, but it was left so flat. We get one member of the murder club telling us that she's actually definitely worked out who the real killer was, and isn't that great? But find out what we do about it in the next book. Sheila gave it a middle-of-the-road three-star review and said, A thriller where the bad guys are not that bad, maybe. The Thursday murder club involves a retirement community, Cooper's Chase, a murder, a recently relocated cop, PC Donna De Freitas, and four friends in their 70s. I don't know why it happened, but I just couldn't read this book at my usual pace. It took me about a week to finish it. I had to buy the audio, which made all the difference. I just didn't understand it. I enjoyed the main characters, Elizabeth, Ron, Joyce, Ibrahim, Chris, and Donna, and I liked the story as a whole. 
Who knows why I couldn't get into it at times? Anyway, the book begins with four retired friends, Elizabeth, Ron, Joyce and Ibrahim. They meet at the Jigsaw Room every Thursday and what do they do? They tried to solve cases of different murders. Then a real murder occurred. Tony Curran, a local builder, is found bludgeoned to death. The four friends will insert themselves into the investigation, forcing Donna and her boss Chris to work with them in order to find the murderer. Like I said earlier, the characters were engaging and I liked them. Yes, I did think that there was no way in real life that the cops would share all their secrets with them. I also don't believe they were able to be one step ahead of the cops. But regardless of those issues, it still works. I previously mentioned that I spoke with a couple of friends who have also read this book, and their comments were not exactly the most complimentary. One of my friends stated that her biggest issue with the book was the stereotyping of the older characters, who make up the core of the book. She felt that they were lazily written, and in some ways the author's interpretation of them was rather condescending. Having now read the book, I can see where she's coming from, these characters were all incredibly competent, skilled in their previous careers, and thrived on being busy. But for me, there was something in the way that Elizabeth, Ron, Joyce, and Ibrahim, as well as people like Steve, Bernard, Penny, and John were portrayed, that felt almost as though they had been created using a blueprint. Especially that when they were hosting tea, and there were repeated mentions of Taste the Difference. Was the author being paid by Sainsbury's for every single mention he managed to include in a short scene? Hey, sponsor me, I'm going to write your name in my book. There also appeared to be a considerable number of moments where the characters were focused on their glory days, even when they were in the midst of a current murder investigation. From a personal perspective, I saw good and bad in this book. But my biggest issue was not with the characterization or the story, though I do feel as though it could have been shorter, had some of the elements of the story that felt unnecessary been removed. No, the element of the book which annoyed me the most, it sounds so silly when I say it, was the chapters. I know, I, I know it, it might sound a little bit weird, but I have my reasons, I really do. I am not a fan of really long chapters. But equally, I am not a fan of short ones either. Some of the chapters in this book were less than a page long. The paperback version of this novel, which I read, is 377 pages. So any frequent reader would assume that a book of this length would have between, I don't know, 25 and maybe 40 chapters. At least in my experience. Oh boy, would you be surprised if you hadn't already read The Thursday Murder Club? Mr. Osman presents us with 115 chapters. And no, you are not hearing that incorrectly. 115 chapters. Yes, that is ridiculous. And now I've taken you through that particular journey with me, what did I really think? Did I like the book? I feel like this book took me on a bit of a roller coaster, and here I am not talking about Space Mountain, which I was able to enjoy without revisiting my breakfast. My friend did nothing, here I have to stress this, she did nothing at all to colour my interpretation of the book before I picked it up. 
unless you count a micro wince when I told her that I was going to be reading it. All she said was, it wasn't my favourite, at least until I had finished it and I started to ask her questions. This means that these opinions are 100% mine. I wanted to like it. I had heard good things and bad before I read it. I think that Osman is an intelligent man and I really wanted his writing to reflect that. The Thursday Murder Club was full of potential. We have four strong, well-educated and accomplished adults who are intrigued by unsolved murders. This club that they have established is the sort of thing I would probably want to join if I was living day to day, waiting for my family to visit and reminiscing about the way things were in my heyday. I have to be honest, I know a lot of people who are in their 60s and 70s. Hell, my mum is in her late 60s and probably should have retired by now, but I know that she would be bored out of her skull within a few weeks. Elizabeth and her cohorts are anything but frail and fragile. They are determined and aren't going to let anything get in their way now they have the bit between their teeth and need to solve this murder. Unfortunately, the intricacies of their lives, the family visits, the make of cakes they serve, the peripheral characters who aren't really part of the main story, it all feels like an unnecessary distraction from the core plot that is, for me at least, resolved so quickly. It's a case of blink and you'll miss the motive and the murderer. Will I read more by Richard Osman? The sequel to this book, The Man Who Died Twice, has more positive reviews than this one, which could be considered a good reason to pick it up. However, not right now. I may well do so at a later date, but as I have mentioned quite a few times previously, my TBR pile is incredibly long right now, or high, depending on whether you're looking at my Kindle or my physical book pile, And I am really looking forward to reading every single one of the ones I already have, though I have already purchased two new ones this afternoon and they are due for delivery this week. Yeah, let's not talk about that. If you're looking for something like this or you loved this and want something else, then you'll love these. There are quite a few books I could recommend if you're looking for a cosy crime novel, starting with the original and, in my view, best, Agatha Christie. If you love the idea of pensioners getting one over on the police or working with them, then you can't go too far wrong with Christie's Miss Marple series. In total, there are 17 novels in this series, starting with Murder at the Vicarage, which I reviewed a few months ago. Then, of course, you have the books by M.C. Beaton about the media-savvy Agatha Raisin. Right now, there are an incredible, seriously, I counted them and then counted them again, 34 of those to choose from. And I have actually reviewed one of those too, the first one, The Quiche of Death. If you want to read about a group of crime fans solving murders, then take a look at the 11 books in the Aurora Tea Garden series by Charlene Harris. Yes, Aurora is at the centre of those, but she has help from her friends in the Real Murders group. Hey, you there. Do you like podcasts? Are you tired of the bullshit? Well, this is not the podcast for you. Actually, it is, and we are... The Lords of Swine! We discuss nerd culture. And we drop every Tuesday... On any platform. 
were literally everywhere. This week I have read a total of two books, which isn't too bad given I have been working long hours and have again been absorbed in light crime series on Acorn TV. I can't help it. I have just finished the 14th Aurora Tea Garden TV movie and have now moved on to the Martha's Vineyard Mysteries. Yeah, there are lots of them and I am loving every single moment, even though they are pretty predictable. The first book I read was the one I've just been talking about and the second was actually my third Lindsay Kelk of 2022. In fact, I am going through so many books that I will never get to talk about in my extended reviews that I'm thinking of doing a few mini-sodes so I can offer short reviews of the books that I have been enjoying in amongst all the others. (laughs) Yeah, I'm reading a lot. Though not as much as some. I was looking at the posts that go out on the last day of the month with my January reads. I'd read seven and I was looking and one or two people had had read in the realm of 21 and 22 books. I wish I had that time. This coming week, I will be returning to the office and I am going to be taking something science fiction focused with me, at least for now. I am looking forward to trying my seventh new author of the year. If you have any recommendations of books you'd love to hear me talk about, send them on over to notbeforecoffeepodcast at gmail.com or use the recommendation contact form on my website and I will be sure to take a look because I'm always looking out for new books. We're now heading towards the middle of February, so if you're looking for something new to add, what about some of these new releases? And there are lots of them. Love and Saffron by Kim Fay is a novel about travelling, love and food. I love me some food books. And is released on the 8th of February. Block, Delete, Move On is a book about dating and relationships in the internet age by the Instagram account La 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 Let Me Explain. Now that's far more creative than my Instagram account name and it's released on the 10th of February. The House of Sorrowing Stars is a fantasy written by Beth Cartwright and it's another book released on the 10th of February so Thursdays seem to be book days. A debut novel with a mythological theme based in Trinidad is another release for the 10th So keep an eye out for When We Were Birds by Ayana Lloyd Banwo. Doesn't that sound musical? I might have to put that on my wish list. This is by no means the full list of releases. In fact, I know that there are plenty more because I have seen the list. But mentioning them all could take all day. So... How are things in the coffee household this week? It's actually not been too bad. Sure, I am currently recording this less than six hours before it's due to be released, but that's totally down to my lack of ability to organise my time properly because all I really wanted to do this weekend was read. That being said, I did have a few really bad nights this week and wow, I sound really happy saying that and I'm not at all. Some strange and disturbing dreams and a whole night that felt like it was never going to end, where I enjoyed maybe two good hours of sleep courtesy of my brain's determination to not let something go, 
though I don't know what that something was. I have to be honest, I have absolutely no idea what caused the panic attacks that kept me awake. But hey, there is nothing new there. In all honesty, nothing at all. How do your panic attacks start? Mine always hit me at the worst possible time, when I'm most vulnerable. Lying in bed, listening to the faint sounds of the radio plays I always listen to when I start my nighttime routine. Everything starts out absolutely fine, and then, for no reason at all, it's as though the cogs in my brain start to click and rub against each other, and the noises in my head start to get louder and louder until it's impossible to ignore them. No matter what I do, the noises crowd out everything else. Eventually, I give up on the idea of sleeping and sit up, occasionally checking my pulse because even though I know it's a panic attack that's causing my heart to beat out of my chest, I still need that level of reassurance. It can take hours, it can take minutes if I'm lucky, but eventually I will try and lie down again, do my best to breathe deeply and maintain a certain level of calm that has until this point been eluding me. The attacks this week were a little worse than normal in that all the meditating under the sun didn't work and I knew that the following day was going to be nothing but meetings. Yes, sometimes they last for more than five hours. On days when I could happily just bury my head under a pillow and stay that way until the sun goes back down again. Before anyone says anything, yes, I have had therapy, and lots of it. I also take medication to stop the palpitations from being quite as terrifying as they often prove to be. Sometimes meditation and medication are not the way. Unfortunately, on those occasions, like this one, the only solution is to wait them out. So that's what I did, and that's why, four days later, I am still wishing I could spend an entire day in bed. But anyone with pets or children will tell you, that never happens. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, why not share it with your friends and family and please post a star rating on Good Pods, Spotify or Podchaser or wherever else you listen. You can follow me on Twitter at need underscore three underscore mugs and on Instagram at not before coffee podcast. Or you can check out my website, notbeforecoffee.co.uk. Well, I need another cup of coffee as I haven't had enough yet. So I'm going to go and put the kettle on. Until next time, this is me saying farewell. <laughs>